0: to where brains meet beauty hosted by jody katz founder and creative director of base beauty creative agency hey everybody it's jody katz your host of where brains meet beauty podcast this week's episode features dr gregory brown he's the founder of Revive skincare and if you missed last week's episode it featured jacqueline gutierrez she's the founder of beauty backer i hope you enjoy our shows I am so excited today to be sitting across from Dr. Gregory Brown. He is the founder of Revive Skincare. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I am very excited because this marks a very special moment for our show. We're recording in our brand new podcast recording studio in our brand new office, and you're our very first guest in this Exciting. new space.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for um, being patient while we work out the kinks. Sure. So, um, for our fans, we're sitting in a room just sort of surrounded by um, acoustic paneling. Um sitting at a table with um, hot pink microphones.
1: Yes, love it.
0: <laughs> so um, I'm excited to talk with you because of so many reasons. But um, one is that many, many years ago, when I was a freelance copywriter, I worked on Revive.
1: That's what you said. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> it was so long ago. I was um, almost a child. <laughs> and um, I don't even remember who I worked with, but it was a lot of copy for events. You must have been very active and Sure. In your practice, throwing a lot of events to support the, the brand. And when um, Alana Zeifer took over as your CEO, is was like, oh, my God, that's so cool because I know her and I knew the brand. So I'm so happy to have you as a guest.
1: Great. It's good to be here.
0: So I'd love to go back in time with you. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of action in your brand recently, but I want to go back to the time when you thought I should be the founder of a skincare brand. So um, take us back.
1: Sure. Well. Uh, as you know, I'm a plastic surgeon by training and certainly never set out to have a skincare brand. It takes too long to be a plastic surgeon to begin with. But... Um, during my training, I took a couple of years off and spent time with uh, what was then the infancy of biotechnology in the Bay Area, San Francisco, with a company called Chiron. They were all basic scientists. And they had just developed human proteins recombinantly, and that was a new whole new industry, the biotech industry. And some of those human proteins had never been available for research before. And I was very interested. I had just finished spending time on the burn unit at Mass General where I trained in general surgery. And uh, burns are devastating injuries. And usually if somebody doesn't survive a burn, it's because the burn can't be skin grafted quickly enough and they get sepsis and and succumb. So the thought was that if there was a way to... uh, decrease the time of exposure without skin grafts, that it could decrease mortality. So these molecules um, were important for healing and actually since they were available in larger quantities, uh, we started doing experiments on them, human experiments, and sure enough, long story short, we're able to show that we could uh, make wounds heal faster. And that was a really important concept. It's used in burn wound therapy today to grow skin and tissue culture for difficult wounds. They're called growth factors. They're human. They occur in tiny quantities in the body. And that's why very little experimentation had been done before the biotechnology industry came along. Then it was able to make large quantities. So what does that have to do with Revive? That's a good question. It actually has a lot to do with it because the physiology is very similar. In order for those wounds to heal faster, increased cell renewal has to occur. And in order to stabilize or reverse the signs of aging, um, increased cell renewal has to occur because one of the things that happens as we age, um, the skin cycle, especially the epidermal cell cycle, slows. You know, when you're 20 years old, you completely replace your epidermis about every three weeks. From cell division, the cells divide on the bottom, they go to the surface, and they're exfoliated. That's one cell cycle. Maybe it takes three weeks. As you age, when you get to be my age, um, it may take six, eight, 10 weeks. And that's one of the reasons uh, we get that sort of dull, lackluster uh, skin of aging. So I had the idea, could we um, stimulate the cell cycle in aging skin? So that was kind of, to use those molecules that were important for burn wound healing, could they also stabilize or reverse the signs of aging? I did a whole series of human studies. Volunteers, long story short, were able to show that and actually patented the concept of growth factors to reverse aging in skin. And then Revive was slowly born out of that.
0: You were in private practice in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. In the
1: 80s, is that right? 80s, 90s, and early
0: 2000s. Why Kentucky?
1: It was my home. Uh, My parents were there, only child. I trained elsewhere. I trained in Boston and Atlanta, but I went back there. So that was kind of how I ended up there.
0: And um, at that time, what um, what were your patients asking for? Were these cosmetic solutions? or
1: In the early days, I did a lot of reconstruction. Uh, but as my uh, practice matured, more and more aesthetic and that sort of thing. And certainly aging is part of that.
0: And um, what did you learn about yourself when in Kentucky in the 80s and 90s as a plastic surgeon?
1: <laughs> well, Kentucky is very conservative. And uh, I had lived in more metropolitan areas. It was a little difficult to go back, uh, but it was my hometown. And it was easy to start a practice because I knew so many people um, in that sense. But it was um, a different lifestyle.
0: Tell me about that.
1: Well, um, I was raised a Southern Baptist, which is a very conservative religion and— Kentucky is very conservative, as I mentioned. I happen to be a gay adult male. So that was difficult. And that was in the time of AIDS. There was no cure for AIDS at that time. So it was very um, what I thought, maybe not, but I felt like patients would be scared to have a gay surgeon because he might be able to give them AIDS, which there was no cure for. It was a death sentence 100% of the time. So that was an added pressure. Um, and that might have been true in New York or Atlanta. I had a job in Atlanta. I could have stayed there. Uh, but there it seemed to be more, um, at least in my own mind, more pressure um, in Kentucky that way, personally.
0: So you lived a life that was not super authentic at that time
1: yes i did i uh i was engaged to women twice uh luckily for them and me i never got married but in those days especially in the 80s um even today to some degree but nothing like it was then a lot of men in my situation lived an an authentic life um Even our candidate for president, who's gay uh, today, he talked about, you know, until he was in his 30s, lived a not-authentic life, Buttigieg. Mm -hmm.
0: And what what sort of emotional pressures did that put on you during the time?
1: Uh, A lot, because, you know, when you uh, don't—when you're not living an authentic life for who you are, um, there's all kinds of pressures, because you're not being honest with the world or yourself. So— uh, dishonesty is a hard way to live. So yeah, it was a lot of pressure. Uh, plus to add to that, um, practice in medicine.
0: Right. So um, you would wake up every day and make conscious decisions to interact with female friends in a way that feels very familiar, even if you're not feeling that way about them, right? You like actually like choreographed these moments for
1: yourself? Well, luckily, I had uh, some female friends that understood my situation, and they uh, were helpful to me mm. that way. So you
0: were honest with them. I was honest mm-hmm. with
1: them, yeah. And so that helped, but it still was a lot of pressure because that was before social media or anything, and I certainly, I was in the era of physicians that did not advertise. So really the way to build a practice in those days was to go to social events Take part in community events and all of that sort of thing. So that was a big way to build your practice. And so, uh, yeah, that was just an added pressure.
0: Right. So the the sh- you had to um, keep up appearances as a heterosexual man. Yes. Were you able to actually have a personal life that was fulfilling? Minimal. At the time? Minimal.
1: Mm-hmm. Not much. No. And your, the older I got, the better that got. But.
0: And your family? Did they? Were they, you honest with them?
1: You know, like any good dysfunctional family, they knew, but we just didn't talk about it. As long as I didn't, um, as I lived like they wanted me to live, uh, we didn't talk about it. And you know, I was what I call King Baby. I was an only child, first person to go to college, <laughs> certainly to medical school, Harvard, all that stuff. So you know, they all they didn't want to go there.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, were there like. Other people you could talk to, like other physicians, who you um, felt comfortable being honest with. Not really.
1: No, Mm -hmm. no, it was um, it was pretty clandestine.
0: Yeah, it sounds really lonely.
1: It was, yeah. And so I worked all the time, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, part of I think I sublimated a lot of those energies into, you know, I had a busy, successful practice or quickly. So that was never quite enough. So then I started long story short revive. Um so I do think it came out I don't know if I could say positively, but I did sublimate a lot of those energies into other directions.
0: Mm-hmm. So um in our intake call you were incredibly honest and open with me about your life and as you're sharing now. Um you know, and it's decades ago you couldn't be honest, right? And now Correct. You, um had told me that you wouldn't, what would the point of the interview be, right? If you weren't completely honest, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Um, you talked to me about the pressures of running a business and how um, it led to addiction. Right. So um, I'd love to dive deep into this because this is a topic that a lot of people don't talk sure. about. Um, and it's as much a part of your life as anything else. Right. So tell me, um, where did the addiction begin?
1: Well, you know, I'm 15 years sober this month. Actually.
0: Congratulations.
1: It's <laughs> awesome. But um you know, I've learned over the years, you know, at first I thought the addiction was because of what we just talked about, the pressures of that. I did develop rheumatoid arthritis. So I did have a reason to t- I was addicted to pain medication, not alcohol. I never really drank. Um so I had there's a drug called Ultram that's supposedly not addictive for pain that I did get addicted to. So, but I think looking back these many years later some people are just wired for it um i think i was one of those people there is some heredity in my family of alcohol my immediate family no but uncles aunts and all of that that had addiction issues so i'm not so sure you know there are a lot of people that go through the same pressures and never have an addiction problem so as strange as this may seem, that may be one of the best things that ever happened to me. It was very difficult to go through at the time. Um, but having come through it and um, been in recovery all these years, it's made me um, a much different person than I think I would have been. Um, you know, I was never—I was raised in a religion, and I never did not, not believe in some sort of uh, creator— but it wasn't a big part of my life. And of course, in sobriety, that's a huge part of your life, a spiritual, I mean, the way I got sober is through a spiritual solution. And so it's become a big part of my life.
0: And um, what did addiction look like for you? What how is it part of your every day?
1: It was, it started out slowly. Uh, I would maybe at the end of the day, instead of having a drink, I would have two pills. Then um, I, decided Revive had grown because i was practicing i was practicing and Revive at the, in out of my office at the same time so i realized even before the addiction kicked in that i couldn't do both medicine at least for me is too much of a commitment to be sidelined by anything else so i made the conscious decision because i had Rheumatoid that I would retire from medicine and then do review full-time, but then it the the addiction really kicked in once I didn't have the responsibility of medicine and Maybe by the end by the time I went to rehab. I was taking 20 pills a day. Oh
0: my goodness. Yeah, and um, Did your friends know?
1: No, I mean, you know, that's the the uh, Strange thing about a lot of addicts Uh, Most people knew I had a personality change. Uh, One of the women that uh, I worked with closely, she thought, oh, my goodness, does he have AIDS? He's changed so much. Uh, My parents, I remember when I told my parents uh, that I had an addiction problem, my mother said, oh, thank goodness, I thought you had AIDS. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, people knew that I was different, but nobody really, strangely enough, knew that I was taking 20 pills a day.
0: How interesting, right? Yeah. That you yeah. could be re- so reliant, yeah, on this medication, and no when knew but it. But
1: addiction is that way. It's you know, it it's um, it's the devil,
0: right? So I think a lot of people probably think of addicts as you know, people on the street, right? No,
1: there are a lot of people in your life today. I'm sure that have some. A lot of people have a lot of addictions that aren't chemical, but even chemical addictions, yeah.
0: So how did you know when it was a real problem?
1: Well, I sort of knew. Uh, I mean, I knew this, but, you know, you you lie to yourself. And so, one day, I had to go, actually, to a business meeting in Dallas, and I decided I wouldn't take pills. And I became suicidal.
0: In that one day?
1: Yeah. And I didn't know, um... I mean, I wasn't even sad. I just wanted to jump out a window. It didn't, it's, you know, it's insanity. It's total insanity. But I got a massage, I called my parents, I did everything, and I still wanted to do it. So finally, I um, called the house doctor at the hotel and I said I had a headache. Could he call me in some medicine? And as soon as I took the medicine, the suicidal tendency when thoughts went away. And I knew that was sort of a moment of clarity. I knew that I had a problem. So I came home and within a week, I went to rehab.
0: So, is this unusual that somebody sort of um, see- sees this for themselves? That is not like friends or family sitting them down, saying, "Wow, there's a real problem here."
1: Uh, I think ultimately, even when a, even when there's an intervention, the individual has to come to a point that they because most a lot of interventions don't go well and don't end well. But I think the person that's addicted has to come to that, yeah, to ever really get sober. I mean, they talk about a bot. My bottom wasn't. It was an emotional bottom more than it was – I didn't really lose a lot of things monetarily or any of that sort of thing. But I certainly was bankrupt from a spiritual standpoint, emotional standpoint.
0: So um, those – feel the suicidal feelings really freaked you out?
1: Well, that's really – yes, it did. It got my attention. Mm-hmm. And then I knew I had to deal with it.
0: And what, um, what was the process that week? before you, um, you know, when you came back from Dallas to um, leaving for rehab? Well,
1: I knew that I couldn't go to just a uh, institutional cinder block wall rehab. Uh, So I actually went online and I had read years ago about a place in uh, Malibu called Promises where a lot of, um, at that time, celebrities went. So I called them and they had a bed and I went. And they, it was great. It it changed my life.
0: But you did this for yourself, which I just find so fascinating, yeah. right? Um,
1: but I knew I had to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did yeah. you think that if you didn't, you were going to die?
1: Yeah, I was at a rock and a hard place. I couldn't take pills and I couldn't not take pills. So, yeah, I knew that something had to give.
0: And um I'm curious about that conversation with your family or with your friends when you told them you have a problem. Did they did they were they surprised?
1: They were very surprised. Yes. I had a partner at the time and he was very surprised. They all thought I mean they knew I was not quite myself, but they didn't they were blown away when I told them what what it was.
0: And did anyone say to you, "No, no, no, you're fine?"
1: Uh, I think if it had been alcohol, they might have. But when you say you take 20 pills a day, nobody can say that's fine. Right.
0: And you were able to access 20 pills a day because you're a physician? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And I mean, um, those types of pills were not even scheduled 2. They were scheduled 3. So we used to just, when they first came out, we would give them to patients just, well, they always had a prescription, but not, they weren't really like an opiate.
0: Right. So they weren't classified as super scary and dangerous no. pills. Mm-hmm. No. So access to them was way easier. Right. Wow. Um, this is really fascinating because I think a lot of people don't realize um, that you can be completely functioning. Right? I was.
1: Totally. Going through, you know, life, um, it, it, the people closest to me didn't know. Yeah. It's scary.
0: And what was the burden of that secret like?
1: Um well, it was, you know, it was sort of um, a living hell in a way because, I mean, I'm, you know, a physician. I was intelligent enough to know this isn't normal and can't go on forever, but you kind of, we talk about um, addiction as insanity, and it is. You know, when you hear what people do <clears throat> to feed their addiction, it, it's obviously um, not sane.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, if you could give anyone advice who's a friend of someone who comes to them and says, "I have a problem," what would you tell them?
1: Well, I would be loving, you know, um, and non-judgmental, and tell them, you know, they don't have to live this way. Mm-hmm. They don't have to do it. There's a there's a
0: solution. Congratulations on 15 years of Thanks. sobriety. That's really incredible. Thank you. Um, I'm going to shift gears. Okay. Completely opposite direction. Okay. Let's talk about your business bouncing around from um, owner sure. to owner. Sure, <laughs> Well maybe a little bit of insanity in that <laughs> in that as well.
1: Um, you know, that's been an interesting um, path as well. Um, but I, I was sober, and uh, I got sober in 04 and uh, that it really revived, took off. Once I had stopped medicine and went to rehab, then Revive grew exponentially. Profitable, big numbers, uh, and people, if you remember in 07, early 08, it was a little bit like now, sort of a gilded age. People were coming out of the woodwork wanting to buy the brand. So ultimately, I was talked into selling it. And, you know, for me— why do you say talked into? Well, it was my baby. It still is. I didn't want to sell it, really. Uh— although it was more money than I ever thought I would have uh, from practicing medicine, which is a good thing. But at the same time, you know, you sell a little bit of your soul. Um, so I had a wealthy older partner, uh, minor, minor shareholder, and he uh, he's the person that made growth factors. And that's why he was my partner, because in those days, you couldn't buy growth factors. He uh, said, we're going to have a recession and we should sell. Uh, I didn't believe it, but Long story short, we did end up selling in the spring of 08, just before the market crashed. Uh, And, you know, in retrospect, I might've lost the business during those, it was a bad time for at least two or three years. Um, And the company that bought it, uh, they really tried, um, but the company, Revive, and the other company they bought with us never really did extremely well under that management. And so, uh, they sold it again to a bigger strategic, just about maybe two years, two and a half years ago now, and Raviv really suffered under that management. And then, um, a a private equity company came along, um, and they had wrote me and said, did they think it would be, you know, could they buy it? And they talk to the strategic and so long story short everything worked out I put money in they put money in our CEO did our COO did so uh, 18 months ago we bought it back
0: so let's talk about the um, you know selling the baby um, through those years so um, owner one An owner, too. Did you have any role in the business
1: during those time periods? I did. I stayed on with product development. I always have done PAs, which are called personal appearances at our retail stores, like Neiman Marcus and Saks. I've done those all along. I've done some press. uh, But we were always overshadowed by bigger companies in the family of those owners.
0: So were you essentially an employee at I was point? A, consultant. a consultant.
1: I was never mm-hmm. an employee. Mm-hmm. I was always, but I had an office here in New York at one of, at, you know, the, the strategic's main office and that sort of thing.
0: But um, you didn't have a seat at the table?
1: No. Mm-hmm.
0: And what does that feel like? Because we, you know, we kind of hear about it every day, founders selling their brands. Brands it's not fun.
1: <laughs> now then I have more of a seat. I'm on the board of Revive, So it makes a difference. You know, it's hard to tell. I just talked to some somebody that's thinking of selling their business over the weekend and um, you can't really, it's like surgery. You know, you can tell somebody what surgery is going to be like and what to expect, but until they do it, They can't know. And the same's a little bit true about selling your business. You can tell them, but until they do it, they can't know. So it's a difficult thing.
0: Before we started recording today, we were talking about um, you don't have your name on the brand, right? So you didn't actually sell your name. Correct. Um, But we see it all around us, right? People establish brands using their first and last name. Right. Decades later, they get into situations where they don't own their name anymore.
1: And that's a bad place to be. I mean, a lot of of people get a lot of money for their name, but once it's gone, it's gone. And you can't get it back.
0: It must be um, so painful on so many levels, right? Because we identify ourselves with the babies that we create, right? Right. Our entrepreneurial endeavors are part of us and part of our soul, um, as is our name, right? right? Our name has value and meaning, and we all work very hard to how well, many of us have a good name and make it mean something. Um, I think it just must be torture.
1: I, yeah, I know several people that's happened to, and yes, it's it's very difficult.
0: So you were um, a consultant to your own brand, uh, the founder consultant to your own brand, through two life cycles of different owners who um, weren't able to, I guess, achieve the growth that you would have hoped. Um, in addition to not growing, was there anything that like actually like really was devastating to the brand beyond the lack of growth?
1: The good news about through both of those was that it was kind of ignored, mm-hmm. and that that may sound strange, but the reason that was good, there was no our formulas weren't tampered with, mm-hmm. our distribution wasn't changed, so we kept our uh, tight distribution with the uh, luxury specialty retailers. Um, all of our formulas we own, so those weren't—I hate the phrase—but dumbed down. So um, th- that turned out to be a good thing, especially now.
0: So it's almost like it was in a winter slumber.
1: Uh, yeah, a little bit of a hibernation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, so maybe the the headline for the summary of this this episode is: It's good when your brand's ignored and when it's so well, sold maybe, from buyer to buyer. You know, <laughs> as
1: ironic as that sounds. And the Rich Gersten, who is head of the private equity that we're involved with now. He always said that one of the biggest um, kudos for Revive is the fact that it survived all that. And I think that's true. You know, that says a lot about it, that it went through all of that and didn't go away.
0: So after all these years, what is it like now to actually have a seat at the table again?
1: It's been exciting. It's been a great 18 months. Um we have a dynamic team. We have an amazing CEO, COO. Tengram's very involved. Um, you know, we've seen it turn around in a short period of time. So um, I'm glad I weathered the storm. A lot, As you know, a lot of founders, when they sell, they just can't take it. And I get that. I totally get why they have to just step away. But for whatever reason, I, I stayed. So I'm glad.
0: Yeah, and to um, be able to... Um... I guess trust that the universe. Well, I don't. Did you trust that the universe would take care of the brands? I sort of
1: did. I felt like you know, I'm really a glass half full sort of person, especially since I'm in recovery now, and um, I've always just had this sense that, you know, there would be light at the end of the tunnel. So, and it was a really a ten year period. Yeah.
0: And um, having trust and faith um, in the unknown Mm -hmm. and the uncontrollables close to impossible for most people. Um, you know, what can you extract from your recovery process that can help somebody kind of through that? Well,
1: that's what recovery is, you know, that you have to, um, You, I call it creator, I call it God, people call it other things, higher power, whatever, people, but you have to trust that um, we're not in control. When you think about it, in reality, as human beings, we don't have a lot of control over many things. We certainly can't control other people. We think we can. We try, but we can't. We can't control institutions. We think we can. but We can't control the weather. So in reality, you have to trust that there's some benevolent thing that's looking over everything and that will it will ultimately, maybe not in the short term, be what you want but what you need and will turn out for the better. And so that really, that thought process has kept me um, in the game.
0: So what do you think, looking back now, the universe is giving you as a gift when, other than the financial um, transaction of selling the business, what what do you think the, the universe is giving you as a gift when you were not having a seat at the table and these brands maybe weren't being managed? Like, What, did, what do you think you needed at that time?
1: Well, you know, I, what I just said, I think I had that way of thinking about things. I thought that, well, I was treated well. I was respected. Uh, I didn't have a lot of power or say in what happened, but I was never, um, except by the last strategic, they were bad, and I won't say who it is. But the first strate- the first big company, um, they really tried and they um and the last, the second strategic, they made it very obvious they didn't want the brand. They just had to take it because they bought its sister brand. So from the get-go, we knew that they really weren't going to do much for it. Uh, but again, they didn't hurt it other than neglect it. So that was a good
0: thing. So I just wonder if. Um at that moment, the universe gave you this kind of ultimate test of like, well, you don't have control and you, you actually don't. Have, well, we all know we don't have control over things. But here's a situa- situation where you actually don't have control anymore. Right. You're you're not the boss. Right, You're not the owner. Um, and to have to move through that um, is a gift, right?
1: It is. It's a lesson. And, you know, in the very early Period of not owning the business, I would, you know, I was complaining and talking, and they're not doing it right. They're not doing it the way I do. So there was a woman that worked for us. I really like her a lot. And she said, Well, quit. And I thought, Well, I don't want to quit. But what I did learn from that is that the only thing I can control is my reaction to a situation. So I sort of changed my tune. And ultimately, the universe came back. And this where we are today. So I think the thing you, we do have control over are the people we surround ourselves with and our reaction to situations. So those two things are really important. And I think if if we do the next right thing, then the universe ultimately will reward
0: us. I try to um, teach my team to think about, like, how important is this, this thing that you're dealing with, right? Most of the time it's not, right? Maybe it feels big. But if you put it into perspective um, or how important is losing a client, how important is not get, getting the new client, how important is a client being unhappy with the photo shoot? Like, in the end, it's just not really important. Um, and I think when we kind of refocus our attention on what is important, the people we surround ourselves with, as you mentioned, um, the joy we have in our work, um, seeing the sunshine, being out in the sunshine – um, it really puts things into perspective and makes work way more fun.
1: Absolutely. Which is my goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so my last question for you, and now that you are back um, at Raviv, um and have partners who are re- investing time and money into it, um, what, what do you want to do with it? Where do you want to take it?
1: I want it to be a global brand. I want it to be, you know, Revive is branded, but not really. A lot of people don't know the brand. So... You know, we are primarily domestic. We have very little penetration around the world. So there's a huge opportunity for us to grow. And um, that's what I would like to see. Yeah,
0: well, um you'll be racking up your frequent flyer miles, right for all <laughs> right. those public appearances. right. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing Thanks your for wisdom and your story with me today and with our listeners. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Brown. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast.
1: Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.